today, we must all be aware that protocol takes precedence over procedure. However, you say, what, the, what does this mean in relation to the tabulation whereby we must once again realize that the great fiction story is now being rehearsed before our very eyes in the Nixon administration, indicating that only an American writer can receive Welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Scott Yarbrough. And I'm Kirk Kernut. And this is Season 3, Episode 1. And today we are tackling a magnum opus, a great American novel called Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. And we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of this novel, Scott. So what do we have to say about it? Boy, howdy. It's published 1973 and wins the following National Book Award. Also wins a Nebula Award for that year. Do you know what that is, Kurt? I believe that is the greatest science fiction novel of the year. Yes, as chosen by Science Fiction Writers of America. So the Hugo is chosen by attendees, or it used to be, I don't know if this is still true, chosen by attendees of the World Science Fiction Convention, but the published Science Fiction Writers of America association choose the best novel so it's authors who choose that one so that's another big award which is interesting to think of this book as being defined as science fiction although there are ways in which it clearly can be defined that way kirk we we have a book that starts off where we have a american soldier slash agent is uh, poorly defined exactly what his day-to-day job is in britain in london particularly during the blitz whose erotic conquests and sexual encounters seem to, in some way or another, forecast where V-2 rockets will land. And he is being studied by various British scientists and operatives, and it eventually comes to light that he has been experimented on since he was a baby by Pavlovian psychologists and psychiatrists trying to develop certain powers in him. And sooner or later, his dim understanding that he's part of this mammoth governmental, military, industrial, scientific complex experiment causes him to flee through Germany at the end of the war and all over the place having strange madcap adventures. And although Tyrone Slothrop starts off as our central character and protagonist, Many, many, many other characters come and go and are of various importance throughout the book. And toward the latter stages of the novel, Slothrop is less and less important, reflecting a bit the themes of the novel. And if that sounds complex and odd and hard to parse to those who are listening out there, welcome to Gravity's Rainbow. (laughs) We should mention that in addition to the National Book Award and the Nebula Gravity's Rainbow probably should have won the Pulitzer Prize for that particular year. However, when the jury advanced it to the board of the Pulitzer, the board refused to award it to Pynchon, in part because they found the novel vulgar, crass, bloated, and unreadable in sections. So this is one of the rare instances, I think, where the credibility of the novel was probably uh, amplified a little bit by the fact 
that it was denied the Pulitzer Prize. You remember we did uh, Age of Innocence, which won the Pulitzer over Sinclair Lewis, and that was a controversy that I think kind of uh, hurt right. Edith Wharton a little bit. But uh, in this case, I think it works to uh, pensions advantage. The other famous thing about the awards that have were ladled upon the book when it came out was for the National Book Award ceremony, Pynchon infamously sent the comedian Professor Erwin Corey to pick up the award and imitate him. And we'll get into Pynchon's by now legendary, long legendary refusal to uh, be seen in public. But this is, as you might guess, a whopper of a novel. It runs almost 800 pages in the original Viking Press edition. It has almost 400 characters, and this is why we are not able to really give you a coherent or cohesive uh, plot overview. This is probably the most famous modern example, I would say up until the mid-2000s, with maybe the emergence of Robert Bolano, of the encyclopedic novel. And maybe one way to think about this book is to think of it along the lines of Moby Dick. It is, uh, although I don't think anybody is dying to use this term, it is a kind of Menippean satire on its own. It's one of those books that tries to incorporate everything to juxtapose the high classical seriousness with the uh, sort of low physical humor of the masses. So right away we have in our opening few pages a juxtaposition of a bombing and a slip on a banana peel. And in some editions of the novel, you actually get a rocket coming out of a banana peel on the cover. So that gives you an idea. But Thomas Pynchon is certainly recognized as one of the major post-World War II authors, certainly one of the major ones from the 60s on, in part because of the mythology created about himself, but also for the sheer breadth of his novels. But I I think Gravity's Rainbow itself represents an interesting, maybe relic, from the middle of the atomic age or the nuclear age, because it is a novel that really is, I think, exploring the significance of what it means to live in an area where humanity could be instantaneously evaporated. And it's using the rocket imagery and the whole history of rockets as a way of talking or asking what control do humans have over the technology that they Mm. create? So getting a handle on this book, we will talk a lot in the next hour about the reading experience, which can be an adventure, which can be a bit of a gruel. I think when you talk about pension, you also have to deal with the fact that there is a subculture of pension fans out there that can be erudite, but also annoying as hell. In fact, if I could indulge you just a moment and read you a cute little parody short story I found on the internet that in a kind of long week had me laugh out loud. This is from 2018 from a literary journal called Broken Pencil by a guy named Chris Gilmore. And it goes like this. Melanie McIntosh, 28, part-time life coach and full-time vegan activist, uh, recently finished after two months of steadfast reading Thomas Pynchon's 800-page novel Gravity's Rainbow. Melanie described the experience as life-changing and utterly fulfilling, adding, I can finally go dumpster diving with my friends without feeling silly. 
Like many undergraduates, Melanie had read Pynchon's earlier novel, The Crying of Lot 49, in a course on American literature. But when she admitted to enjoying the book, her boyfriend, Laird, had scoffed and shaken his head. <laughs> it is a perfect parody, stating that Gravity's Rainbows was so obviously superior that to mention these two in the same breath was like admitting you like David Gilmore's Pink Floyd over the infinitely better Sid Barrett Pink Floyd. And then any <laughs> further discussion on the subject would be like arguing over the shape of the earth or whether GMOs are inherently harmful. Melanie characterized the exchange as a wake-up call, to say the least. <laughs> I don't think that's an inaccurate impression yeah. of the culture around pension sometimes, or Laird is certainly reminds me a lot of people that I went to graduate school who were pension fans. I like pension a lot. I struggled to read him, and I will admit that right off the bat. It's definitely a long and difficult haul. I'll say. And when you talked about the encyclopedic novel, I think I would even come up with a subspecies of encyclopedic novel that I'm going to call the cipher novel. And so not only is everything in the kitchen sink thrown in there so that you have to educate yourself in specific ways, but some of it is so deliberately obscure and complex and strange that it's hard for me to envision how people tackled some of these books before the days of the internet. Uh, and typically, I mean, they go out and buy two or three other yeah. books that would steer them in the right direction. And so for me, although I do agree with you that in some ways, the playfulness and weirdness of what pensions up to postmodernism is there from the very earliest days of Henry Fielding and, uh, you know, and, and also for that matter, Tristram Shandy and books like that, you know, Stern, I think following after what Moby Dick does, you get to Finnegan's Wake with James Joyce, which if you're trying to read for a through plot is almost impossible to do. And then in the 50s, we had the Recognitions by William Gaddis. Right. And each of these books is more than what we used to call a, a Romana Clay, you know, a book with a key, because in those cases, we usually mean there's an autobiographical element that's somewhat hurriedly covered up. And the, the excellent example would be The Sun Also Rises. For weaker examples, we'd talk about primary colors, you know, the book about uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton that came out in the, I think, the latter part of Clinton's presidency. And in these books, it's not so much that there's autobiographical information in them, although there is. It's also that there are strange, obscure references to things that you really have to follow up on to understand. So the references to a young man named Red being sexually abused is actually talking about Malcolm X. And it just goes on and on. There are other similarities to this. So very much in a way that you can be rewarded through digging through and following up on and finding out about all the other stuff going on, it is a full-on challenge to, to do I so. think you mentioned Joyce. This is probably the closest we have in the American tradition to Ulysses. And it's almost impossible for general readers to get through it without maybe a companion book to help explain the context and the sources. So I would recommend Stephen Weisenberger's Gravity's Rainbow Companion. Uh, that's a book that originally came out in the mid-80s, before the internet. Imagine having to research all of the allusions in this book uh, before the internet. 
but right. it did a revision about 10 or 15 years ago. And I think it's it's very helpful to getting a sense of both the historical context. If you don't know the history of rockets or you don't know what a V2 rocket is, you're not going to get an explanation of the background in the book. So it's almost like you have to read two books at the same time in order to stand this one. So right. let's talk a little bit about who Thomas Pynchon is. Um, Thomas Pynchon this year will be 85 years old. Hard to believe, but he was born in May 1937, grew up on uh, Long Island, went to Cornell University for a couple years, uh, entered the Navy, and for reasons that we will see, graduated high school at 16, so he's a bit of a phenom, and for reasons we will talk about here shortly, the last picture of Thomas Pynchon publicly released is a 1955 photo of him uh, in his Navy uniform. So Thomas Pynchon has not been photographed officially in public, does not do publicity for any of his novels or uh, does not go on talk shows or anything like that. Now we'll talk a little bit about some clandestine hunting of him down, but Pynchon is singularly focused on his writing. And he is probably, uh, yep. he comes from a school that in the 60s got dubbed as the postmodernists. We'll define that term uh, in a little bit. But it's worth noting that Pynchon came out of the gate before he was 40 with three novels, V, The Crying of Lot 49, and Gravity's Rainbow. V came out in 1963, Crying of Lot 49 was 1966, and then this one took him until early 1973 to be published. And we certainly understand why it took so long with the uh, voluminousness of it. But if we're going to give you a quick definition of what postmodernism means, what would that definition be for you, Scott? You know, in the... To a student reading modernist literature, by which we mean James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, uh, William Faulkner, and for that matter, Fitzgerald and Hemingway, they might think of all the things that make up what we call modernism and say, well, postmodernist is the next thing which occurs, which is not exactly true because you can still today, although we are a hundred years after the dawn of modernism, uh, you can still write something that's postmodernist. So if you think instead about the most experimental elements out of modernism, the use of not only stream of consciousness, but communication breakdown and indeterminate identity of characters and the way that time slips, the way uh, things are arranged thematically rather than in terms of coherent plot, then postmodernism is the, the movement which picks up after that, where again, the realism is at a great distance. Sometimes there are purposeful subversions of realistic portrayals in order to make thematic realities. They're influenced by and incorporate uh, pop culture in different ways. And connected to this, I think, would also, as it grows, because the earliest postmodernist novels were in many ways simply metafiction sometimes or existentialist Mm -hmm. fiction. So we think of John Barth's work and early on it was a great prevalence in terms of metafiction. So calling attention to the artificiality of the text and that the author is purposely creating an artistic environment to lure the audience along into certain conclusions so that you see the wires the entire time. So I think, though, at a certain point, the rise of post-structuralist theory and criticism 
comes to play a part. So the notion of how structures work, how we have meaning is indeterminate coming out of Roland Barthes and Jacques Derrida from France in the 50s and 60s respectively, and how everyone has blind spots that they try to cover up, how we arrange everything into bipolar oppositions, which always obscures reality and that uh, meaning is in the eye of the beholder and is constructed differently by each person. All those post-structuralist notions continue to play into the development of postmodernism. So to take all this digressive response down into a more cogent statement, I would say that when the themes are consistent, but the plot tends to make use of wild, fantabulous, strange innovations in order to call your attention to kind of mile markers in the in the text that show where we're going thematically. And it defies typical plot. That's outline. great. That's perfect. The only thing I would add to that is maybe a little historical context and just say that by the 1950s, the modernists were to the emerging generation of writers born in the mid to late 1930s and early 40s, what the Victorians were to the modernists. They were museum pieces. And I think right. you can look at the what were supposed to be the big spectacular modernist novels of the 1950s, uh, whether that's The Old Man in the Sea or William Faulkner's A Fable or even East of Eden. There's a certain creakiness to them. And you are dealing with big writers whose day yeah. has passed. So right. postmodernism is, is a sense of rejection of a lot of elements of modernism when we think of oppositions, now some of these kind of collapse when you put them under a microscope, but in general, postmodernism is more about the surface than the depth. There's not as much reliance on uh, symbolism or trying to capture the interiority. There is much more of a sense that time is a series of perpetual presences rather than the deep history or the deep burden of history. I think it's yeah. also very important, too, that postmodernism really thrives in the 1960s in the era of pop art. And maybe right. the most significant thing about it is that uh, postmodernism is a literary movement that embraces rather than rejects popular culture. Because the idea is in, in postmodernism, popular culture is all we can know. And it is, in the, it is so inextricable from the world around us that we, we negotiate our lives. Our lives are mediated, in a sense, by television shows or pop music or movies. So right. there are a lot of oppositions there. And I think the absurdity of it feels like a very 1960s conceit. You can read a latter-day pension novel, and it still feels like it could have been written in the 1960s. That's right. maybe one of the simplest ways of, of saying it. There's also a lot about, and you use the word cipher novel. Another term I'll throw out there is the idea that Pynchon and Barth and a lot of these postmodernisms were less interested in individuals or believed less in individuals than they were interested in systems, and in particular kind of bureaucratic systems or administrative right. systems that tend to control or define our lives. And a, a large part of why there are so many conspiracies or of invisible plots 
in pension, uh, sort of hints of secret authorities that are in charge of things is because that's, a, again, a very 60s notion. But it comes out of that idea that that we really are, our sense of free will is, is really limited by the systems that surround us and shape the direction of our lives. In some ways, I think Gravity's Rainbow is probably the exploration of systematicity that the matrix wishes it were. You know, the matrix to me gets bogged down sometimes in a lot of the interminable discussions about right. determinism versus free will. But Pynchon, I think, has a talent for putting in those hints of systems through conspiracy theories, but also yeah. ridiculing them at the same time. We read these texts and we're really meant to be lost. So if you get into the experience of it and you feel like you're cast at sea without a lot of structure, without a lot of life vests or anything to cling to, that's what it's supposed to feel like. It's attempting to recreate that sense yeah. of sensory overload that is in the world around us. Right. And I, I think we can think of postmodernism as a kind of continuum where right. on the most straightforward end, we would have Kurt Vonnegut. So how, Slaughterhouse-Five, where the science fiction elements are really probably meant to be taken as a, a form of PTSD rather than actually occurring. And it jumps back and forth. It calls attention to the fact that Vonnegut himself is writing a novel mm -hmm. about Billy Pilgrim, but it's kind of based on things that happened to Vonnegut, but it's not exactly the same. But it's, So that indeterminacy in, in terms of the artist versus the artifact is all there. And then at the, I won't say furthest extreme because there are some books which just simply defy readability right. period, but Gravity's Rainbow is definitely toward the top end of that spectrum in terms of its challenges and difficulty. I think you would also say that the literary postmodernism definitely has an effect on film, both in the sixties and even up Later films such as The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and the, uh, oh, what's the one, Charlie, uh, with uh, being John uh, Malkovich, for yeah. example, would be uh, things that have a very pension-esque feeling to them. And I think you could ask yourself, we're not totally sure. I'm not totally sure Pension would have written this book if you hadn't had a film like Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm come out with its parody and farcical element and so absurd that it ventures on the postmodern. But I'm I'm pretty positive you don't have Charlie Kaufman screenplays coming later if you don't first have Pension. Exactly. So after Pension publishes Gravity's Rainbow, and it brings him a level of fame and notoriety, just to give you one example, this is always an intersection of interests that I've always sort of found fortuitous in my own life. But in the mid-70s, a journalist named Jules Siegel, who had been a close friend of Pynchon's, published a article, uh, I believe it was in Playboy, about uh, Thomas Pynchon stealing his wife and you know, it was supposed to be a postmodernist kind of takeoff on being friends with Pynchon, although I think they were estranged by that time. One of the stories he tells, believe it or not, is of ah. taking Pynchon to the home of Brian Wilson, who was the singer-songwriter, the leader of the Beach Boys, uh, right about right after Pet Sounds came out. And uh, apparently they sat in a huge Arabian tent that had been constructed right. in uh, Wilson's living room. And they smoked so much hash, Turkish hash, 
that they absolutely couldn't communicate with each other, and it was apparently a huge disaster. But one of the pop culture references that appears throughout Pension between Crying of Lot 49, there's a kind of Beach Boys-esque group as early as, you know, 1965 or so, but also Inherent Vice with ends, which with what to me is a a very revealing sentimental reference to their song, God Only Knows. So Pynchon is certainly known for having a lot of rock music and a lot of 60s, late 60s rock music in his uh, books. But Mm. after Gravity's Rainbow appeared, there was a a long gap. There was about a 17-year gap between novels. Uh, He did publish a book of short stories, his early short stories, in 1984. But, Scott, I was in graduate school in uh, early 1990, 32 years ago, when Vineland was published. And you'd have thought Moses was coming out of the clouds with a new set of scrolls. Uh, It was a huge event. People were really anxious to have a big statement from a uh, very important writer. I think those expectations probably worked against Vineland a little bit. I think you could argue that somehow in those 17 years, Pynchon maybe got a little more onto the pop culture rather than the theoretical rigors yeah. uh, that went into previous novels. So some people call that Pynchon light. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a fun little diversion. But certainly since then, in the past 32 years, he's written, I believe, five novels if you include Vineland. And I don't think anything will ever top Gravity's Rainbow in the sense of it being his his greatest work. Certainly not his most right. accessible, but maybe his most historically important. And um, and that's all right. Very few of us get one Gravity's Rainbow in our life. Yeah, it's almost like the the cork popped, and then suddenly every you know Mason and Dixon, which is another fairly large doorstop novel and probably the second half of his career uh, most people's uh the book they like the most um and, and a lot of people are quite fond of against today but mason dixon comes out in 97 against the day 2006 inherent vice which is his kind of pastiche of, novels uh literary la noir and detective novels uh 09 and then uh, most recently now nine years ago although it's weird to think of it's that long ago in 2013 bleeding edge Ten years ago, I forget, it's 2023 now. It is interesting that he had such a long delay. And, you know, we do sometimes see that when someone has a so much success early on, it's hard to follow. And so in a lot of ways, I think a lot of people were starting to identify Pynchon with mm-hmm. Ralph Ellison and yeah. J.D. Stallinger. And especially Ralph Ellison never became a recluse. He just never wrote, he never finished any more long fiction. But J.D. Salinger absolutely holed up in the compound. And and so people, I think, were, because of Pynchon's incredible avoidance of publicity and all the weird conspiracy stories that came out about him maintaining his secrecy, uh, you know, people don't know where he lives. Editors haven't met him, supposedly, uh, either, I don't know if it was Violin or Mason and Dixon, was finally delivered in a you know, brown paper wrapped manuscript delivered to a trash can outside the building of one of his editors. Now, again, how much truth there is to this stuff and how much it's actually just part of the legend that grows in the great American cookie factory of urban myth, you know, who knows? But these are the stories you hear in literary circles. And I don't want to ruin anybody's enjoyment of these stories, but the internet 
does have a reputation for ruining anything. So I will just huh. tell audiences that uh, not too long ago, only about four or five years ago, the Inquirer conducted a three-month sting operation in which they set out to track pension down. And so if you want to, you can go online and you can see a picture of what looks like an elderly hermit with his son going to cast a vote. I personally recommend that you don't do that and let the let your imagination run wild. But there have been in the past... There's a, there was an earlier attempt at that by the news in 1997, 98, where there's photos of him uh, walking around with his young son at the time. And, uh, right. you know, he looks exactly like he would have, if you drew long hair and a beard around the, the photos of him from high school and, or the Navy that are the only images we have of him, they, he looks exactly like what you would expect. So it kind of ruins the whole mystique, I think, if you go online and look for it. But it is an indelible part of his uh, mythology. Yeah, Scott, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the reading difficulties of uh, going into Gravity's Rainbow. I think probably if you are a reader who... Is, uh, imagine yourself a marathon runner. That's the way you approach this book. You need to think of it as doing something, maybe even a postmodern version of Ulysses. Right. You're in for that same sort of experience of being overwhelmed on a chapter-by-chapter chapter level. So what are some of your memories of reading this book, and what challenges did you face when we uh, just reread it? When I first read this book back in... Probably around the time Vineland came out, uh, I think that, in fact, that is why I read this one, because I couldn't afford the hardback being um, a graduate student who didn't have any money. But I was able to go buy the big orange uh, sun version of the, the classic uh, Penguin Viking, you know, original um, paperback. And I just skipped everything I didn't understand. I read every word, but if I didn't understand something, I just didn't care. I just went with it. And I was aware I was reading something that fell into that encyclopedic cipher category, but I just lived with the idea that, oh, well, that much of it's indecipherable, but I've read it and lots of it I found very entertaining and silly and goofy and fun. And so this is the first time of every book that we've talked about, probably other than The Adventures of Augie March, this is one I've read the least because this yeah. is only my second time through it. This time, like you, I found internet wikis and I purchased a little study guide to get through it. Now, it's a digression for those of you who, uh, the three people maybe who are out there who wish that we came out these more often. Kirk and I both are uh, English professors and administrators as our paying jobs. And a lot of times that means we're having to read a lot of things for our own writing, for our own teaching. We're having to do a lot of uh, grading and reading tons and tons of research papers. For instance, at the end of semesters, we're writing syllabi and prepping for new classes during break. So it's not always easy when we have to seriously reread books to just kind of do it off the cuff. There are certain books that you could roll us out of bed at three in the morning and, and we're ready to go. So the great Gatsby, the sun also rises beloved novels like that. I think both of us have taught enough that we kind of know them inside and out. Then there are other books like this that I haven't read in 30 years and it took a little bit 
of getting back into. So for me, rereading it this time, I did find that with those eight of those guides, I could enjoy little vignettes separately and see how characters change and evolve. But of course, part of the disappointment is you might get a little bit invested in a storyline which vanishes or a character who goes away for 300 pages or a character that you think is going to be pretty significant who just never comes back. Or And then you'll have a minor character introduced at the 50% part of the novel who then over the next 400 pages becomes one of the most significant characters. And so it's a very weird reading experience that way. You could almost think if it were science fiction, they'd break it into a trilogy. And you would think of each book as having its own character that way. You know, it's probably worth mentioning, Kirk, that it doesn't have actual, for the most part, regular chapter breaks. Instead, you get a little grid of boxes which are just meant to be a an official space break. People sometimes say it's supposed to be a rockets on a film, but I've seen that disavowed right. by the editors in a few places. And so you you're just kind of a, along with the ride. And I think there's four or five actual significant chapter breaks. You might even call them books within the novel. But beyond that, of course, we go from one weird notion to the other. So his early ability to sexually prognosticate bombings gets traded out at some point with descendants of an African tribe who were raised to be black commandos for the Nazis who were trying to to determine their own identity and their own future and free themselves from Nazi culture. And of course, the idea that Nazis would use black people to accomplish anything seems bizarre. But of course, then he's really not talking about Nazis. He's talking about slavery in the United States and racism and civil rights. So I I would say that I found it both frustrating and enjoyable. And there are places where, for instance, when in a couple of the later sexualized scenes where he has these visions of becoming his actual penis, (laughs) I find a little difficult. It's hard to take seriously a scene where airplanes are attacking a hot air balloon and they get into a pie fight with the people in the airplane and they knock an airplane out of the sky. Again, the serious aficionado says it's farce. You're not supposed to read it seriously. And the only answer to that is I know you're right. But at the same time, it, it just kind of is its all over the place. One of the ways in which the book is dated is certainly the depiction of sexuality. Obscenity became a passe concern right about the time that he was uh, turning 30. 1966, where you could actually have body racy, explicit novels. And so, you know, that was sort of the period where right after that, he and Roth and Updike and several of those uh, silent generation authors went to town on uh, using all kinds of uh, explicit language. And and I think the treatment of women in the book, he's uh, except for maybe Oedipa Mass in Crying of Lot 49, I'm sh- not sure anybody will ever accuse him of creating yeah. a fully dimensional female character. They tend to be around to be sex objects. And I do think, I mean, I don't know anything about Tom and Pinch- Thomas Pynchon's adolescence or boyhood or his young adulthood, but... Right. Uh, there does seem to be a little bit of a fantasy element going on with Tyrone Slothrop's sex life, where he is enjoying all of these uh, libidinal experiences that somehow predict where V2 rockets are going to land. 
sometimes it's relatively explicit, but it's never protracted. It's never pornographic. But right. he covers everything from the most degradingly vile catalogical fetishes in sections. There's rape. There's bizarre, again, catalogical be, uh, you know, bondage and discipline sequences. And you have to be pretty, you have to have a pretty high tolerance of that to make it through the novel as well. And one of the things we might think about as he's digging into this book, yeah, it's coming just yeah. after, the, the, you know, five or six years into the the loud version of the sexual revolution, if we start that in 67, but there's, you know, we have a lot of indication that a lot of what we're thinking of starts a little earlier than that in the fifties and early sixties. Certainly with the introduction of birth control in 1960. Right. right. And you think of uh, Richard Yates and John Updike and even a television show like Mad Men, which is really of course just influenced by those two writers and others, but a lot of it's going on. And then of course it hits the youth culture in the, in the latter part. And, so if if he's born in 37, when he is just graduating from high school, people have gone into mm-hmm. Korea. And then within a few years, we're involved in Vietnam. And one of the things that is interesting about this is, although he's writing about the end of World War II and the immediate post-war generation, if you will, at the same time, he, this is a book much like Slaughterhouse Five by Vonnegut. That although it's written about elements around World War II, ostensibly, it's really written about the idea that America is becoming more and more dominated. As he sees it by this industrial military complex that that Eisenhower warns us. And in about. fact, we cut right to contemporary times at the in the last part of the book where we go to a theater with a Nixonian figure named Richard M. Schlub and audience that is trying to create a sense of community right at the moment that a a bomb is preparing to drop on on this group of people so it's an apocalyptic image that it that it ends upon and again i think one way to understand it is well let me ask you this scott let's start with the title what did the title symbolize to you well the literal meaning of the title it's discussed at some point in the book and it's the rainbow arc of the rocket is shooting toward the stratosphere, and then gravity takes hold of it. And so it describes a perfect arc of right. its vectoring down to hit the hit the target. And one of the things that, again, people who are scientifically minded and enjoy an encyclopedic novel like this, one of the things they'll enjoy is there's a lot of actual rocket physics equations in the novel that are discussed and yeah. how you make sure that the thrust is enough to get to the proper altitude to pitch it to the right area for people who don't know anything about the latter part of the blitz and the bombing campaign against the united kingdom although the british and the americans in bombing germany used bombers planes with bombs in them most of the ones that came over from germany were actually rockets with a certain amount of guidance that were not manned that drove themselves so self-propelled rockets that could be fired from somewhere in yeah. Uh, Germany or France that would land all over England and parts and of Scotland. The idea was that these V2 rockets were supposed to have won Germany the war. That was supposed to be the breakthrough in technology. And a lot of those same people who went into developing those rockets later gotten involved in the American space program. So there's there's a lot of that overlap that goes on in here as well. 
yeah, if you if you were to say that there's a cynical edge to this novel, some part of it doubtless comes from the fact that at the end of World War II, there's a race between the Americans and the Russians to see who gets to the best rocket scientists. Right. And some of these guys were undoubtedly card-carrying, serious, heartfelt Nazis, and they were forgiven by both ideological governments, a uh, democratic republic on our side, uh, you know, uh, communist totalitarian state on the other. Both sides didn't care about the fascism and uh, crimes of Nazis at all when it came to the space race. And, of course, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, who helps us with the Apollo missions and the fact that we make it to the moon by 69 is one of these people. So it, it would lead to a certain kind of cynicism and darkness of point well, of view. One characteristic of encyclopedic novels, and again, we saw this with Moby Dick, is you interrupt the narrative to have long disquisitions on different abstract types of knowledge. So we get a lot in here, not only about rockets and about physics, but also about mathematics. And it's almost like he's trying to explain different types of technologies as a way of demystifying technology and helping us understand the way that we project our humanity onto technology. But the reality is technology projects its humanity upon us, uh, if I can reverse that. And Ah. again, I think one way to understand this novel maybe is, is some other interpretations of the title. Basically say you can think of gravity as that force that locks us into certain limitations. The idea that we are bound within things, forces beyond our control. But the rainbow itself is an an image of, I think, what for Pynchon are those tiny moments of individual transcendence that are not going to last, but nevertheless give us that momentary escape from the uh, system. And it's worth noting that when Tyrone Slothrop disappears out of the novel, when when we last see him, it is looking at a rainbow. Let me just read you this section here. Throthrop sees a very thick rainbow here, a stout rainbow, and he uses a explicit word for penis, driven down out of the pubic clouds into earth, green wet valleyed earth, and his chest fills and he stands crying, not a thing in his head, just feeling natural. And it's at that moment that he just kind of like the rainbow disperses. I think if you were asking someone, what's a novel about? There's a lot we could say. I think you could talk about how it's always the individual versus the system, as you brought up, how corporations and governments and militaries all work to dehumanize individuals while people try to work back. I think you could also say it's about all the ways we try to understand the strangeness of the world we find ourselves in, whether it's science or whether it's reading the tarot cards, which is a big theme in the last portion of the book, Um, whether it's use of psychics, whether it's use of magic, it's always about trying to ascertain some kind of order. And I think in Pynchon's case, he's trying to say it is an elemental chaos. You'll never really get there. Maybe not. Maybe someone who's read more of his books, because I have to say that I've read, I think, four of them. But as I told you before, the first time I read this, uh, I probably could not have passed an essay exam on the novel um, when it was all said and done. Uh, but so there's so many things going on in it. And again, uh, you know, the use of the Zodiac in right. the novel, uh, 
very informed references to Pavlov and Pavlovian conditioning and how a child like Sofrop, you know, his father lets him be experimented upon by a Pavlovian psychiatrist in order to have Slothrop's college education paid for down, down the road. And that's just kind of tossed in as an aside. Uh, there's, he's lampooning spy fiction. He's lampooning military fiction. He, at one point, Slothrop kind of becomes a superhero wearing a hat that looks like the top to a rocket and a cape, and they call him Rocket Spends Man. Spends another part of, the, part of it hiding in a pig costume, which is a kind of pagan ritual that he gets involved in. And then his arch enemy takes over the costume and ends up getting emasculated by the forces that are after him that want to study his testicles to see if he can really, what what enables him to predict all of these forces. And so, okay, here we have a pagan ritualism combined with comic books with Rocket Man. And right. We were trying to figure out whether this is a reference to the Elton John song, which came out the same year he's finishing <laughs> the novel. And if there's elements of that song comes out earlier than Watergate does. So if Watergate is breaking and ends up in the book, then I think it could well be a reference to Elton John. I don't really know. So over and over again, we have all of this kind of roiling around and some of it is carried through several sections. Some of it's just a a one-off, if you would. Like you're watching a spy movie and they decide to have, or a spy television series and they decide to have a musical episode. So one of the nods to pop culture in here is there are songs written without music, but songs written throughout the novel, and in some cases, uh, and poems written. So you can see a pastiche of the wasteland, a a dead-on poem scattered throughout a portion of the early part of the novel Mm -hmm. that's clearly picking up on Eliot's wasteland and making references to it. And, you know, the thing that I come back to over and over again, uh, other than Dr. Strangelove, is Monty Python. That's a great comparison. It's that absurdity. So the end of Monty Python's Holy Grail, they didn't have enough money to really film all the end sequence and the police arrest them for pretending to be knights and not having the right permits or something like that because people have been killed. And at the same time, they're still King Arthur and the knights as that's going on. And it just kind of ends bizarrely. And it always takes people back the first time they see that. that well, we film. spend the latter part of the novel. And in fact, the the, well, the fourth section is called Counterforce. And there's an effort there on the part of a resistance movement. I think it's very interesting to read this novel in light of our contemporary immersion and all kinds of what I would, to use a technical term, considered wackadoodle conspiracy theories, QAnon being among them. Right. Uh, QAnon strikes me as a very Pinchonian creation. Oh, absolutely. Let me ask you this about conspiracy theory novels, because I think there's a tendency, or at least in this silent generation era, and I'm thinking of Pynchon and maybe Don DeLillo specifically, there's a tendency on the part of, I think, left-leaning writers to see conspiracy theories as a kind of expression of the paranoia created by those systems of authority that are always assigned to or embodied by the forces of the right. And again, it's very important to note that Nixon does appear here, regardless of whether we're quite at Watergate yet. We are dealing with a character at the end of the novel called Richard M. Schlub, Z-H-L-U-B-B. And so it's it's pretty clear he had Nixon on the mind as an authoritarian representative of the state. In our own day and age, it has been the right 
that right. has appropriated the idea of these conspiracies. Uh, and it is the left that embodies the forces of authority and repression. So I want to picture for a moment, if we're writing a contemporary novel about January 6th, and right. we're, we're trying to do something Pinchonian, where we're taking all of these kinds of forces I would worry that somehow we're ending up reinforcing the idea that somehow the system is geared toward liberalism as opposed to authoritarianism. And that was just something that my mind was playing with. I don't think I express that particularly well right now, but I have a hard time seeing how you do a novel in this style today in which the bad guys are the authoritarians. You know, Kurt, I remember well as a freshman in college in a political science class talking to the professor, three or four of us after class, and we're talking about left wing versus right wing extremism and labeling and terms. And the discussion came down to, at the end of the day, what's really the difference between Hitler and Stalin and later someone like Mao? even though they all supposedly represent extreme left-wing point of view, extreme right-wing point of view. And it's really always about totalitarianism. Yeah. So instead of you know left-wing, right-wing, it's kind of a big circle with individual rights and civil liberties on one perimeter or side of the perimeter, and then at the exact opposite end, totalitarianism. And I think that's what's going on a little bit in George Orwell. This is a guy who was sympathetic to left and right-wing, who hated both left and white ring controls and zigzagged back and forth and hating this party or that party. And people were just confused by Orwell for good reason. But the notion in 1984 of it's always the individual versus the oppressive group and whether that group is yeah. saying that you can't read a certain book on a college campus because someone somewhere might be offended by it because it's an offensive book or whether that group is saying you can't challenge uh, their their notion of of sexuality or uh, religion or whatever because that's the correct one. It's still always about some bigger group trying to push around individuals through systems. Yeah. And so I think what Pension might do is figure out a way to make fun of both groups mm -hmm. simultaneously. And I'm not exactly sure how you do that and get away with it. It's the first time in my memory that both that you see this kind of weird bowing of weirdness at the extreme fringes and yeah. the lack of tautness in the middle but maybe that's just what happens before we have a societal all-purpose satire i i i think of something like the bonfire the vanities which feels yeah. extreme at both ends i mean everybody gets ridiculed but at the same time, the right. whole system seems to be a joke rather than exposing any of the inequities that are around. You know, I think that novel is a pretty good pivot. Um, I like quite a bit of stuff by Tom Wolfe. I didn't really enjoy that book because I thought it was very clumsily written. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of early naturalistic novels like McTeague mm -hmm. or An American Tragedy by Dreiser, where it's just hitting you over the head with the meaning. And I enjoyed it from a satirical standpoint when he did lambast both people on both extremes and kind of ragged on the American scene in a very appropriate yeah. way. But I thought as a work of art, it was really flawed. So let me ask you, when you read literary fiction, so not 
fiction for entertainment, when you read literary fiction, what do you hope to get out of it? What does it do well, for you? You know, this is one thing I will tell you as as a teacher, and I think I wonder if you struggle with this. It's almost impossible for me to read as if I were not teaching whatever I'm reading. I mean, I think I get into a book and I start looking for theme. I start yeah. looking for some way of organizing the experience rather than just letting myself flow through it. Because I think I am always besieged by a certain anxiety of, can I make sense of this? And if I can't, I must be Ill <laughs> an illegitimate reader. And I think in part because we feel so sort of rushed in our lives all the time and always have so much to read and pull together for classes, that the idea of being able to read just for the immersion into that world uh, seems like the rarest of pleasures anymore. So I think that uh, I am not a good general reader at this stage of my life. But you've certainly been one before. And I would say that when you read literary fiction as opposed to an entertainment, it it hits you in a different way, right? So it in some way, it strikes a chord with your... I, let's go ahead and be sentimental and say it strikes a certain chord with your heart or your soul that, that vibrates. And in some way or another, it's taking something you felt or something you thought or something you've anticipated and reframe it in a way that provides you context. And so I always tell students, because like you, I am bracketed yeah. eternally with the mindset of a professor. I always tell students, great literature is not telling you the answers. It's simply asking questions. And so, you know, you think of like the end of Winter Dreams by Fitzgerald, you know, short story, but long ago, long ago, there was something, I mean, now that thing is gone. Now that thing is gone to that poetic rendering. I don't know anyone who can read that story who's known bitter sweetness or disappointment that it doesn't strike a chord with. And I guess my question then when you have an encyclopedic cipher novel is how do you think the people who love this novel, how are they fed? Because I think sometimes something can work very well on an intellectual level, but not necessarily work as well on an artistic level. But there are people, but you know, there's such a following for this that, Although I don't completely feel fed in terms of what I crave in, in literary art, I very much trust that it's in here. Is it is some people just want the intellectual stimulation and challenge and that's what I do think it? there's a strain of postmodernists where the idea was that it was an intellectual challenge and the hope was you could just nail down the the meaning of it and it, it's almost like the triumph of running a marathon at some point yeah. in your life. I made it through. I got it. I understand it. You know, I can explain the different references and I get the overall thrust of what is being explored here. So I do think that it's that. One of the qualities of postmodernism is we were talking about this when you were talking about the elusiveness of it with an A, the idea that there are so many illusions in here. You know, the word for illusion that postmodernism made popular was intertext and the idea that there is no outside of reality, that we only perceive whatever is before us as if we're reading an endless yeah. series of of books or one thing always refers to another. There is no objective external reality. We only know it through other works. And I think that that becomes a way for readers to expand their own minds and, and give us the illusion or the hope that we can be 
as intellectual as pension is, and that we can know something or understand that a rocket is a metaphor for the system of our contemporary times. So I do think it feeds it in an intellectual sense. I mentioned before, there's a little bit of sentimentality in pension. And I think his sentimentality is always with the counterforce, with the idea that there is the hope yeah. that at certain moments there's yeah. there's just a tiny bit of resistance that feeds on you there. And maybe an inherent vice when Doc Sportello hears that Beach Boy song, that's maybe the most, yeah. to me, openly vulnerable moment in Pynchon. Uh, where he acknowledges that. It's very a atypical moment, but I do align that with this moment of Slothrop evaporating and breaking down at the beauty of a rainbow. Although it's hard not to tie in that evaporation of Slothrop with the disappearance of Pynchon from the scene and his wanting only to be identified as a writer of these books. Uh, and of course, given yeah. that how much American culture is obsessed with fame and the worship of famous people, and people get reality shows simply because they're adjacent to famous people, and then they become famous because they were adjacent to famous people and have a reality show. It just so it makes something very attractive about writers like Pynchon and to a lesser degree Cormac McCarthy, who eschewed that rat race and just want to be remembered for their books. Something I wanted to bring up earlier, Kirk, is there was a fad in postmodern literature in the early 70s called hypertext. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with the internet. It's the idea that typographical fonts and margins and the arrangement of words in certain ways also conveyed meaning. And it didn't go very far. It doesn't work. I think you could argue certain kinds of reading, like comic books, have always kind of used that. But now, of course, the meaning of hypertext is on the computer. So when you're looking at your Wikipedia page on Babe Ruth, and there's a reference to Henry Aaron, and it's in blue, you know, you click on Henry Aaron, you learn about how he beat Ruth's record. And there's another reference to Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, and you click on them, and there's something about steroid abuse, and you click on it, and you can keep following it. And it something that's occurred to me, and it's I've long thought about it with the wasteland, and I'm sure there's something out there like this on the wasteland. This would be something where someone should create a website book with the publisher where you can follow all these wikis and readers' guides to pages and books on the actual illusions. It would be a massive project, but it would be something that gets across the immensity of pension vision. And again, cyber connections have changed the way that we think in the last 30 years. I'll say if pension does not write a book in which he somehow sexualizes the concept of hot links into a racy metaphor, I will be disappointed. But (laughs) the idea of links, that's another example of the intertext, the idea that everything takes us to greater and greater knowledge. Well, of course, he is of an age now where your ability to understand the new tech suddenly becomes a little challenging. Everyone's had the experience of trying to help their parents program a VCR. And of course, there's a lot of us now (laughs) who uh, are still using terms like, did you tape that session when it's been digitally recorded and so on? So clearly the book is American enough. I think it's about American themes enough. The whole idea of America as a world police and occupying this authority to try to determine the future for good and for bad. Heft, scope, depth, these questions we ask about. I mean, it's an 800-page novel. It's got the, the heft and scope for sure. And durability, well, it's still a cult favorite, wouldn't you Definitely. agree? Definitely. It's still considered a landmark. And I think even though much the the bulk of the novel takes place in Europe after World War II, it's American in the same way that the idea of Americans over there, like in Sun Also Rises, references the American meaning. 
And finally, we're down to a significant artistic accomplishment. And for all its challenges and complexities, for all the fact that I will not be rereading it in a year or two, (laughs) I don't see how anyone can read it and not think it's significant artistic accomplishment. Again, we've got a few other you'd put in there, not just Moby Dick, because Moby Dick is far less complicated than this book is. You don't have to do that much background research comparatively. But Finnegan's Wake with James Joyce and the book that I'm going to recommend under Cannon Fodder, which is The Recognition. Tell us a little bit about that book, Scott. It's very similar to Gravity's Rainbow, although the different sections are more united and easy to read through. Again, you have a few characters at the beginning around a central character who is an art forger. And slowly the cast of significant characters grows But we do tend to follow most of them throughout the book. You don't have 400 characters in the novel, but it's incredibly complex in terms of artistic and religious and literary allusions, again with an A, throughout. And in the same way that this book, Gravity's Rainbow, is much more readable with the help of a reader's guide, there has been actually published a great reader's guide on the recognitions. And recognitions is one of those books that for many years was a cult favorite handed around. It predates this book by almost 20 years, published in 1955, but it really comes back after he wins a major award with his later novel, J.R. And if you're interested in this novel, the reader's guide is just at www.williamgaddis.org forward slash recognitions forward slash trguide.shtml. And it's well worth your trouble. And I think in some ways it probably occupies a middle ground between the incredible experimentalism of Gravity's Rainbow or Finnegan's Wake, which are so complex, and something like Ulysses, which is a bit more easily understood and readable with help, again, help of a guide. So recognitions is maybe halfway between those two. You know, another recent novel, Kirk, that's kind of doing the same thing these books are doing, but in a much lesser degree, is The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. Constant references to physicists and mathematicians. I would mention in terms of cannon fodder, I think probably Pynchon's most obvious heir, although he's been gone 15 years now, is David Foster Wallace. Oh, definitely. He came out of the gate in his 20s with the broom of the system, which felt like a pension homage in a lot of ways. But I think took that idea and took that structure and made it his own uh, with infinite jest. And that's another book that's encyclopedic that you have to struggle to make sense of. Absolutely. And of course, what he's doing that I think is a maybe he's not the first, but it's the first one I remember doing it and seeing it in his creative nonfiction, his great essays. And that's a great way to get into Wallace is through his great collections essays. And I would recommend starting with a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is the ongoing use of footnotes. And so, whereas in pension, you might, you have to leave and go look stuff up on your own. What Wallace does is you'll have the text on the top two thirds of the page. And then this ongoing 30 page footnote at the bottom that's in many ways, just as enjoyable and fun on its own behalf. And again, discursive, digressive, looping in all these different characters and storylines as well. And a life, um, unfortunately, uh, cut short by suicide. Another example, and I think I misnamed this earlier, was uh, Robert Bolano's Savage Detectives, which which is, yeah. again, only 15 years old, but has that very textual sense of breadth. And there's a story there that he had 
I guess, written that quite some time in the past, and it doesn't get published until after he's died. All right. Well, what are we going to do in our next episode, Scott? Kirk, our next book is going to be Marjorie Kenan Rawlings, The Yearling. That's quite a left turn from Gravity's Rainbow. Quite a left turn, and I think we just need to do it, as you said it and we talked about before, a good palate cleanser. Exactly. I'll look forward to it. Well, we thank you again for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you're so inclined, it helps if you leave a favorable review. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master of the Forty, with Kirk and Robert Trogdon focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Rita McCarthy, uh, hosted by myself, various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for listening. Thanks again. <laughs>